You know, we could start almost any sermon or any Bible study. It would behoove us actually to start with verses like this. Ephesians 3.17. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp. Now listen to this. To grasp how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ. How deep is the love of Christ. 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore the world does not know us because it does not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when, we, when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him like he is. When God's word is uncomfortable and convicting, it's because the Father loves you and he wants you to live. When God's word is deep and even confusing sometimes at first, it's because the Father loves you and wants you to grow. When God's word is comforting and encouraging, it's because the Father loves you and he's giving you the strength for that next step, whatever it is for you. No matter what the tone of God's message, no matter what he is saying in his word, it is always from the point that he loves you and wants the best. We're journeying through the parables. In fact, we're kind of in a, a sub part of our uh, journey in those parables that are the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. And nowhere is God's love revealed better than in these symbolic stories. Just like we've prayed, just like we said, some of them are sobering, others are hopeful, and they're all lessons. All of them are lessons we need. We need to hear and take to heart. God's kingdom is like a dragnet. Nobody escapes. And you're, you and me are the fish in there. And we're either the fish that's rejected or the one that's accepted. God's kingdom is like Wheat and tares, and we're either the wheat gathered in the barn or the tares thrown on the fire. We are the merchants who are that rare person that actually realize the value of the pearl or we're the many that, are, that never do. We are the one man who gives everything he owns for a treasure or we're not. Chilling warning, grace is free, but the standard is high. The gift is free, but accountability comes with it. Here's the thing, we are all born the wrong fish. We are all born the poisonous uh, 
tears. We all miss what the kingdom is about on our own. We're all on that side of it. But God tells us this because he loves us. He's giving us a warning. This is reality. But then he gives a promise of hope. The hope that he will transform. There is no hope in Christianity outside of transformation. He will do the work. He will transform us inward and outward. And the transformation's unstoppable if we will give ourselves to it. The question really is, for everyone even sitting in here, are we really that open? Are we that committed that we are willing to have not just some faith, not just a Sunday morning gathering, but actually a transformational relationship with God? Let me tell you this. Jesus didn't die on the cross for anything less than that. That was the purpose of the sacrifice. The parable we're going to explore today delves into uh, how that transformation works or how it doesn't happen at all. It's an incredible parable to look into. It's history and it's prophecy. It's a timeless truth that is actually proven in the past and is certain for the future. As a matter of fact, the principles of this parable are going on right now as you are sitting there and you are listening and you are worshiping. This is going on right now. Here's an interesting thing. I don't know if you realize, but Jesus didn't tell any original parables. Every parable that he told deliberately were based on well-known, well-ingrained rabbinical parables that all the people knew. He just put them into this fresh way that changed the whole perspective of what was going on. So in fact, this parable is actually, that we're talking today is two parables that have been uh, kind of combined into one by Jesus. So what we're going to do is take it and we're going to divide it into its two parts uh, by right and look at them. The first part of the parable is the invitation. It's in your bulletins or in your Bibles, either way. Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his son to those uh, who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some uh, more servants and he said, tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servant, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready. But those I invited didn't deserve to come. So go into the street corners 
and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people that they could find, the bad as well as the good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. This part, Jesus sets up a very familiar scene that as he's saying this, it was boom, it was right in their minds. They knew exactly what this would look like. In the ancient culture, when a wedding was announced, there were two announcements that went out. I would drive us crazy in this day because we send out one with all, all the information. But that's because of the uh, efficiency in which we live. They would send out one that a wedding is going to happen soon and that they had to prepare all the food and have it ready. Well, they didn't have refrigerators and all of that stuff in that day. So what they would do is once everything was ready, people were, you know, ready for them to send that second invitation, which would then be, okay, it's time to come. So there were two invitations that would go out. So that part of it was completely natural to them in the story. Now here's the divine genius uh, that God's using here. He's using it to recount the spiritual history of Israel. He's, he's recounting what actually has happened in the bigger picture. And it would be obvious to the listeners. They would be obvious to those who are sitting there listening. This wedding feast represents God's invitation to the people of Israel. God's people, Israel. And they were invited to the wedding feast, and the, the, and the, uh, the invitation was literally engraved on stone, two tablets to be exact. But the history of the people is one of acknowledging and then refusing to honor the invitation. Thousands of years of Israel was that. Here's the invitation, oh great, but we're not coming. Or they fail in some way. They paid no attention, it says in the uh, little parable, one to his field and other to his business. Now, I might be overanalyzing a bit, but give this some thought. I, I find it interesting he uses these two occupations because a farmer working in his field, it's a pretty comfortable place to be emotionally, physically. He's on his own turf. So there's comfort involved there. The business person is about ambition. Uh, particularly their own dreams, their own ambition. I've got this enterprise, I need to go out there, I need to make money, uh, I need to uh, increase my, my, my business out here, I don't have time to go off to somebody's wedding. So that hasn't changed. I said we were talking in terms of principles that still exist today, and much hasn't changed there. If you look at people who have heard the invitation, but for some reason hold back, Concern for comfort and concern for your own self-ambition, usually somewhere at the root of it, somewhere in the mix. Then it talks about the rest of people. So we have those who are making their claims and yeah, we're all for the king, but now nah, we can't make the wedding. Now the rest of them who had no interest really in the king were even worse. They seized the king's servants, they mistreated them. And that would certainly have hit home to those who were listening. When Israel was on the abyss, when they were about to face God's judgment, 
and go out of existence around 700 BC, God had been sending for some 120 years different prophets to warn them. This is how those servants made out. How did they get treated? Isaiah was said to have been sawed in two inside a log. Jeremiah was murdered by stoning. Ezekiel was murdered in the land of the Chaldeans. Micah was murdered by King Jehoram. Amos was tortured and executed by the priest Amaziah. And then here's the son coming to give the final invitation. And we know how that ends. He dies on a cross of our own design. But the story of this parable that's written in blood and history doesn't stop there. The guilt doesn't stop there. We can't just point at those Old Testament Jews. What has happened since the early church? Just take the early church. Simon Peter died upside down on a cross because he invited people to the wedding feast. Andrew died in a similar way because he offered the same invitation. James died by the sword. John was sentenced to boil alive in oil, but God preserved him because he had to write the book of Revelation for us. Tradition says Philip was beheaded, Bartholomew was flayed, and the list just goes on and on. They didn't do too well, the servants, with us, did they? Well, how about to this day? Through communist revolutions and Islamic Jihad in particular, there have been more Christian martyrs in the last century than all the rest of history combined. There have been more martyrs than all of history combined. Well, how about the treatment of God's servants in the future? Well, all I can say is, have you read the book of Revelation? You know, the thing about Revelation is the beauty in there is there's this assurance that the Christian church will never cease. There will always be people of God, no matter how bad it gets. But the road's going to be rocky. And why does Jesus tell you? Why does God tell us this? Because it doesn't sound all that encouraging on the surface because it's the truth. And people who love you tell you the truth. And so there it is. So the parable speaks to the reality of things, past, present, future. It's a warning of dark times, but with an unimaginable gleaming treasure. God invites you, as you're sitting here, God invites you into citizenship in the eternal kingdom. What's greater than that? He invites you to eternal citizenship. The wonderful news is you don't have to be anyone special. You can quite literally, according to the parable itself, be the average Joe off the street. In fact, you can even be good or bad. Isn't it a wonderful thing that there is nothing you could have done? There is no low that you could have hit that God cannot send you this invitation, that this invitation cannot reach you. How can God deal with us when we're that type of person? Because his holiness is greater than our wickedness. That's the one reason. The only reason any of us will see citizenship is because his holiness 
is greater than our wickedness. So it's all about invitation for everyone. It's the first half of this parable. The second half is about the truth balance. It starts at verse 11. But when the king came, and, it, and you can catch it because there's just this strange rift from what we just read. It's like, what, did he just add this? No, it was very deliberate. But when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. It's amazing. Every tongue shall stop. Every knee shall bow. Then the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Here comes another hard truth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Many are invited, but few are chosen. Hmm. In this part of the parable, Jesus actually breaks from cultural reality. The idea is that you get as the king provided the wedding clothes in here for his guest, and that would be some exorbitant gesture that really in the time no high official, not even a king, would do. You were expected to come in your own wedding clothes. But yet we get the impression that this king goes above and beyond in doing this. So if Jesus is breaking with just a normal cultural framework, what's he really trying to say here? We can't do anything, we can't know anything unless we know what Jesus is trying to say. Well, in fact, we said this was two parables. Now here's another one for you. This second half is actually the combination of two rabbinical parables. It's two rabbinical parables. And the beauty of this is that everybody would have understood what was being said here. They were familiar with the parables of the rabbis. So Jesus was speaking to people who would know what he knew. The custom of the day was, by the way, for everyone to come dressed in their best white. Here's, I tried to talk uh, Derek into wearing this. He said, maybe not, it didn't, wouldn't fit him. I said, it definitely won't fit me. But you get the idea. Everybody would come in something like this. They would be in their beautiful white garment. So there are two parables dealing with garments told by the rabbis. Those that Jesus knew and everybody listening knew. The first parable was, went like this. It's about a king who invited guests to a feast. Hmm. Much like what we're reading. And as per the culture, they weren't told the time or the date. They were just given the, the first invitation. But he did tell them that it would be coming soon, that it would happen soon. So everyone was to go home and wash and anoint their, and then uh, clean up their clothes and be in complete readiness for when that second invitation came. And there were two groups of people when this happened. There were the wise people, uh, and these people took this very seriously. They said, uh, a palace can prepare a banquet, excuse me, very quickly. So we're going to go home, get ready in our garments, and we'll be ready at the palace door. The second group, the foolish people said, 
No, um, they can't really make a banquet that quickly. I don't think it's really too big a deal. So they went off, it says the uh, mason to his stone uh, lime blocks, the potter to his clay. Each of them went off to their own work. So you had the two groups, the ready at the palace door, and those who said, we have time, we're gonna go do our thing. Well, guess what? The second summons to the king's feast comes very quickly. And those who had their garments on were ready at the door and they were taken inside. And then those foolish people who weren't ready came later and the king left them outside the doors to look through the windows and see everybody else having a really good time but not them. So what were the rabbis saying in this type of parable? The parable from the rabbis meant this, be prepared for the summons of God. God calls quickly, be prepared. And the place of the garment in this was preparation. The garment represented your preparation. That's what it was all about. But there was a second parable about garments too, and this would have been rattling around in their minds. The second rabbinical parable is about a king who entrusts royal robes to his servants. And those who were wise, they took their robes and they stored them up and they were kind of like Norma, because Norma always takes care of things and they were clean. They were, they were kept clean always. The foolish people said, well, thank you for the robes. And they took the king's robes rather casually. They wore them to work. They went to uh, do their paint shops at the, you know, and, and do their chariots. That was trying to fit Steve in there a little bit. Steve got that. But they did their farming. They did all their stuff. And of course, then these nice robes then became soiled and stained. And then one day, with very little warning, the king said, it is time for me to take back my robes and put them away in the treasury. And so the wise people like Norma brought in their robes with no stain. They were fresh and clean in mint condition. And the king said, well done, and sent them off with peace. The foolish came in with theirs, stained and dirty. And he said, how could you do that to my robes? And he threw them into prison and then he sent his robes to be cleaned by the royal cleaners. And this is what's represented here. The, the garment in this parable was the person's soul. The garment was the soul. Each person has to hand back their soul to God. And those who hand back the unstained are accepted. Those who bring back a soul stained and soiled are condemned by God. So those are how the two parables would be rattling around in their head. And Jesus knew these parables just like he knew everybody out there knew those parables. And so he turned them into this fresh new thing and he strikes a balance in everything he said in this genius big parable, he opened up to them, the invitation is open to everyone. 
There's no one beyond God's invitation, but with standard and with accountability. What does that mean for us today? Well, it means this. Some people out there say God is love, and who can argue with that? But they use it in the way that God is love, so everybody gets into heaven, regardless of how they live. Well, that is ignorant of God's word. That's not what God says. If we know the right lingo for churches and we, we come into churches and we live in our old ways, we just disguise it with the, the new verbiage, then we're mistaking human tradition for God's transformation. If we follow God, but only in times where it's convenient or the ways we want, we are those people who put off the invitation. That's how this line works. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Many are invited, but few are chosen. Christ doesn't say that to discourage us. He tells us in all love, this is just the reality of things. I'm telling you because I love you, and there's a way to make sure you're right. The kingdom of heaven is like, above all things, the kingdom of heaven is like the land of the spiritually living. It's not the land of the walking dead. The thing that makes the kingdom of heaven heaven is because God's there and God is life and we are in God so we are alive. That is the kingdom of heaven. Is it any surprise then that we have to be spiritually alive to get in there? This is a tool and, a, and an outlet of worship Nobody gets into heaven because they have a good record attending church. Nobody has a good record because they were a pastor. Nobody has a past because they were the, the best church member you could have. The people who end up in the kingdom of heaven are those who are spiritually alive. The kingdom of heaven is like God drawing this land in the, in the sand, this line in the sand, and there's living and dead, depending on which side of the line. And any of us can be on that right side of the line. Any of us can be on the right side. But Jesus says, if you're going to be on the right side of the line, his words are, you must be born again of the Spirit. You know what that is? That is a transformation. You have become someone that you were not before. Paul spoke in these terms. Being baptized, great thing, means absolutely nothing unless you realize from that point when you go out, the old man, the old woman, the old you, the old dead and in sin you ends up in the grave. You die to self and no longer walk according to those old ways. But the Holy Spirit transforms you. Then all those things of the flesh, division, anger, dissension, all go in the grave and what takes over is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. There's so much we could do in talking about transformation. And we should, you know why? Because none of it means anything unless there's a transformation. 
When you put on this garment, the whole idea of the soul is not just that it's a new garment. It's made out of an entirely different material than you were before. That's transformation. That's what God does. There's a verse that I'd love to leave you with. And I said there's a verse we could start with almost any message. I think we could almost end any message with this. And it will be part of that transformation if we were to take it, heart, take it to heart. It would be worth something if day after day, moment by moment, choice by choice, priority by priority, practice by practice, we took this verse and we lived it. What is the verse? Romans 12.1 Therefore I urge you. Therefore I implore you. Brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, that free gift that we were talking about that comes with accountability. In view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. That is true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal, the renewing of your mind. You catch how that's binary? <laughs> it's one way or the other. It's conforming or transforming, and it's going on all the time. It's absolutely crucial to take this to heart, to understand this. Why? Because many are invited, but few are chosen. Many are invited, but few are chosen. And the few that are chosen, here's the secret for you. Take this all the way to your grave. The few who are chosen are those who have been transformed to life, to the spirit, made into a new fabric, kept clean without stain. Few are chosen, but everyone in this room could be part of that few. Every one of us.